So we are in um, the middle of a series on the book of Joshua. And the reason we're doing the book of Joshua is because it's one of those books of the Bible, um, I think, anyway, from the Old Testament, where when you're young, like maybe in like vacation Bible school, you actually take a look at this book and you hear the stories in the book. But then all of a sudden you're 46 years old, in my case, and you realize like, wow, I have not read those stories in a long time. They still have a place in my memory and in my consciousness, but what would they sound like to me now as an adult? Where would I see Jesus in the midst of these stories? What would God have to say to us through them? And so that's why we decided to jump into this uh, sermon series on the book of Joshua. So the first week, really, we took a look at Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, and, and maybe the key verse in that section of Scripture was, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And so there's this great sort of challenge, this great reminder that God is with us, a call to be courageous. And so our thesis statement was that God has called each of us into lives of courageous engagement where we are utterly dependent upon Him. That was sort of the takeaway from that, is that God has called each of us into lives of courageous engagement, wherever you are, and yet He calls us into that engagement being utterly dependent upon Him. Last week, we took a look at Joshua chapter 2. Some of you guys remember the story, um, but it's the story of Rahab and the spies. And so one of the key verses from Joshua chapter 2 was where she says, "'Our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below.'" It's this great declaration by Rahab that she believes in Yahweh, the covenant God of the people of Israel. Our thesis statement for that section of Scripture was that God saves broken people, and Rahab was one of them, maybe more overtly broken, but God saves broken people who believe and trust in Him, and then He does marvelous things through their lives. And we saw that uh, really Rahab had a, a wonderful thing done through her life and that she is in the family line of Jesus, our Savior. And this week, we're going to be taking a look at Joshua chapter 5, verses 1 through 15, and there's this interesting encounter that Joshua has with this figure who uh, Scripture tells us is the captain of the Lord's army. So we're going to jump into that in just a moment. But before we do, let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you very much that you've brought each of us into this place this morning and that uh, we don't know what what it is that you have for us. Um, But what I would ask is that what would happen is that we would encounter you, the living God. Uh, Father, I pray that we would encounter you and that you would change not only the way that we think, Uh, but the way that we feel, Father, and then that flowing out of both of those two things, that you would also change the way that we live our lives. Um, So, Father, ask again that we would encounter you this morning. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen. So, I don't know how many of you guys um, are athletes or musicians or who regularly had to get up and sort of be involved in some sort of uh, competition or maybe a performance. Many people that are involved in performances or competitions they have pre-game rituals, right, or pre-event rituals. And so uh, sometimes people, you know, will wear the same pair of socks before they, you know, in, are involved in their particular performance. Or maybe somebody will eat the same meal before a particular game. There's any number of these pre-game rituals. They're kind of superstitious. They're usually kind of funny, but they're interesting. And the truth is they exist throughout all of these arenas of our lives. Um, I actually uh, outlined a few athletic uh, pregame rituals that I thought were kind of humorous. So let me stick with me for a second, if you would. There's a guy named Wade Boggs who played for the Red Sox. He's now retired. There's a picture of him with a pretty great mustache. I don't know if Mark McLucas is in here anywhere. Mark, you here, buddy? Anyway, too bad because Mark's mustache maybe rivals Wade Boggs. But anyway, not only did Wade Boggs drink 
uh, an amazing amount of alcohol, which that's a totally other story for some other time. But more importantly, he ate fried chicken before every single game that he played, right? I don't know about you, but I respect a man who loves some fried chicken. That was his, that was his pregame ritual, fried chicken. Probably got in his mustache. Anyway, number two, Brian Erlacher. This is uh, an all-pro linebacker for the Chicago Bears who's now retired. And he's just like, you know, this huge, muscular, like angry-looking guy. His pregame ritual was that he would eat two, no more, no less, Girl Scout cookies before every single game. Two Girl Scout cookies. Love it. I don't know which they were. You should take a vote on that. Anyway, number three, this is going to be less relevant unless you're a soccer fan, but the guy on the left there is Laurent Blanc, and the guy on the right is Fabian Barthez. Barthez on the right is the goalkeeper for France. This was back in 1998 when France won the World Cup, but Barthez is bald. Laurent Blanc, Laurent Blanc went on to coach the French national team, but his pregame ritual is that he would kiss Fabian Barthez on the bald head before every game, right? It's a little gross to me, whatever. Anyway, this, speaking of gross pregame rituals, here's another one. For all of you who are no fan of LSU, and that should be some of us, if not lots of us in this room, Les Miles, the former coach of LSU, before the game, would go out onto the field. Can anybody, anybody remember what he would do? He would eat grass. He would grab a handful of grass and eat grass before the game, which if you want to get a bunch of college kids pumped up, I guess that's the way to do it. Anyway, he's no longer coaching at LSU, by the way. He got fired. Anyway, now there are a couple other pregame rituals. And again, I I could have done this in lots of different ways. I could have said, what's the most, you know, the, the coolest one? One super cool one that's particularly relevant right now during the NBA Finals is LeBron James before a game will go out and he'll grab chalk and he'll throw it up into the air. Some of you guys who are NBA fans maybe have seen that before, but it's a great pregame ritual. Perhaps the greatest pregame ritual in all of sports, however, is, uh, is actually something that's done by a rugby team called the All Blacks. And uh, here's a picture of them. You can't really see it because it's a dark picture. But they do something called the haka, and it's where they chant. I don't know if it's a Tongan war chant, but uh, they direct it towards the other team, and it's this sort of war chant that they do, and it's really actually pretty cool. I would encourage you to Google it. Just Google the Hakka and the All Blacks. Anyway, point is, all these are, in a sense, they're pre-game rituals, right? Or they're pre-event things that they do to get ready uh, to go into battle, essentially. Now, here's what's interesting. In Joshua chapter 5, verses 1 through 15, we have a handful of uh, pre-game rituals that we're going to read about as well. Just bear with me, if you will, Joshua chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. Now, when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until they had crossed over, their hearts melted in fear, and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites, right? And so all these people that the Israelites are going to engage in, they all of a sudden were stricken with fear. Verse 2. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at uh, Gibeath Haraloth. Now, just let me call time out here. As a pregame event or ritual, I'm no military commander, right? I'm definitely not an expert in ancient Near Eastern warfare, but it seems to me that circumcising all of your troops right before battle is at least a risky move, right? (laughs) I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but like if they sent spies over to the camp and they saw a bunch of guys laying around in agony and in pain, they were like, you know, we could probably take them right now. Anyway, risky move. God, however, clearly 
thought that it was exactly the right time and the right place uh, in order to go through this. It was his thought. And so often we're reminded of that truth in Scripture that, that God's plans are just different than our plans, that what he thinks is different than what, what we think, that what he believes is different than what we believe, that what he knows is different than what we know, and we have to submit to him. Again, that was sort of the point of the, the thing I said right before we broke up. Isaiah 55 makes this point, and frankly, the point is made all throughout Scripture. Isaiah 55 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Obviously. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. That was true 3,500 years ago. It was true 2,000 years ago when Jesus died on the cross. It's still true today that God operates in ways that don't always make sense to us. Verse 4. Now, this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the, the men of military age, died in the wilderness on their way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness during the journey from Egypt had not. Verse 6. The Israelites had moved about in the wilderness 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died. This is the, the, uh, the, the demographic of the people who basically believed the ten spies when they said, we can't do it, they're giants in that land. Um, they're, they're too big and too bad for us. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land. He had solemnly promised their ancestors to give us a land flowing with milk and honey. So he raised up their sons in their place. And these were the ones that Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. Verse 9, then the Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day. And so that term Gilgal, the place where, um, Joseph, uh, where uh, Joshua circumcised them, meant that, that word means to roll away. And so essentially what was being communicated there is that God had taken the shame or the rep- reproach of the Israelites and like a boulder down a mountainside had rolled it away in this act of circumcising them. Verse 10, on the evening of the 14th day of the month, while encamped at Gilgal, on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. So here's the other pregame ritual. They celebrate the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate the produce of Canaan. So the Israelites were circumcised, and next they're celebrating the Passover. And it's interesting that the order of circumcision and then Passover is actually meaningful. Exodus chapter 12, obviously several, uh, s- several books earlier, makes it clear that circumcision always precedes taking the Passover and that no one who is uncircumcised is allowed to participate in the Passover meal. Now, that's another sermon unto itself, which we're not going to cover today, but this is all meaningful. Verse 13, when Joshua was by Jericho, He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you're standing is holy, and Joshua did so. 
couple things really quickly. There's a, there is debate over who this captain of the Lord's army is. Is he an angel, right? Is it the pre-incarnate Jesus? That's what many people say. Is it simply Yahweh? One thing we do know for certain is that whenever people try to worship an angel in Scripture, like a lot of times an angel will appear, and it says that somebody will fall down and start to worship the angel, and the angel will always very forcefully say, don't worship me, I'm not God, and that doesn't happen here. So I think it gives us a clue of who it is that Joshua encountered here on the plains of Jericho. So what do we take away from this passage? That's the question. And again, like I said, I think you could preach three or four different sermons from this passage alone, but I'm going to focus really on one uh, primary thesis statement, and that statement is this. It's that the default question of our hearts is whether or not God is for us. Like That's just the default position. It's the default question of our hearts. And the answer, according here to the captain of the Lord's army, is no and yes. So let's jump in really quickly about the default question of our hearts and whether or not God is for us. Verse 13, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? So just for a second, put yourself in Joshua's shoes, just for a moment. 40 years earlier, right, Joshua might very possibly have stood on this very plain overlooking the city of Jericho. And part of what we know uh, is that he's getting on up there in, in years now. In fact, Joshua 14.7 tells us that Caleb, one of the two spies, uh, one of his, you know, his buddies that went into the land together, when they entered in the second time, Caleb was 82, right? So he was you know, definitely an older gentleman. And so it's safe to assume that Joshua maybe was around that age as well. And you might imagine that Joshua is standing there, he's on the plains, he's looking at Jericho for the second time in his life, and he's probably thoughtful, he's probably reminiscent, he's probably praying, right? He surely remembers the fear and the disobedience of the Israelites the first time, and maybe he's praying that God would give him and the people courage. It would make sense, right? Maybe he's recalling God's promise to be with him. Maybe he's asking for reassurance or a sign. One of the things that I pray for all the time is I pray, you know, God, please be with me. Please be my strength, right? Don't let me trust in myself. Let me trust in the fact that you are with me. And at this moment, as he is thoughtfully reminiscing and probably praying, at this moment, he looks up and he sees a man, right? A soldier standing in front of him with his sword drawn. So let me just Again, ask you one, for one second, how would you respond if suddenly you were confronted with a sword-wielding soldier in the parking lot at Publix or at Kroger or on Barry's campus? I mean, the truth is you'd probably run away. You'd probably call campus security, right? It depends, I guess, whether or not my kids were with me or not, but I would definitely try to avoid the person who's wielding the sword, right? Not Joshua. This is what's interesting. Joshua has stood in the presence of the Lord on Mount Sinai. Joshua, the soldier to whom God has promised, I will be with you. Do not be afraid. Be of good good courage. Do not be dismayed. Joshua walks up to this man and confronts him, this soldier. Joshua confronts him. He's probably 80. And what's interesting is that scholars actually talk about the phrase went up to him. And it's actually in Hebrew, it's a euphemism for he went up to challenge him, right? Which I, I absolutely love. 
right? I mean, so you've got Joshua, who's this like Robert Duvall type character. He's standing before this captain of the Lord's army with sword drawn, and at 80 years of age, he walks up to challenge him and says, hey, who are you for here? Are you for us? Are you for our adversaries? It turns out, however, that his question reveals something not only about his heart, but it reveals something about our hearts as well, because the question is, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? Are you for me? Are you on my side? Interesting to go back to Genesis chapter 3 and to look at this thing we call the fall at sort of at the very beginning of Scripture. And the fall is where um, Satan enters into the garden and tempts Adam and Eve. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 6, but, but what you'll see in this is that what Satan is tempting, particularly Eve in this passage, to do is to doubt whether or not God loves her, whether or not he's for her. Listen to the words of Genesis chapter 3. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The seed of doubt that he's planting is he's saying, did God really say that? Like, is he really for you? Can you trust him? That sounds kind of crazy. Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will will die. Verse 4, then Satan says this, you will not certainly die. He directly contradicts God, right, and puts Eve in this position of who do I side with, who do I believe? And so you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, I think God's holding out on you. I don't know that he's for you. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it, right? Here's what's interesting. Jesus, uh, who knows how many years later, uh, is in the wilderness, and Satan tempts him, and he tries the same tactic. Listen to verse, the words of Matthew 4. It says, the devil took Jesus, or him, to a high mountain, very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And here's what Satan says. He says, all this I will give to you, he said, if you'll bow down and worship me. In essence, what Satan was doing is he's saying, look, whatever the plan that God gave you was, like, there's a better way. There's another way. Are you sure that you can trust God? Is God really for you? And Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So since sin has entered the world, the default setting of our hearts is to doubt that God is good, to doubt that he loves us, to doubt that he is for us. And when we choose to sin, we are unconsciously or consciously believing that we know better than God or that he's holding out on us. Satan knows this and is constantly tempting us to doubt God's goodness to us. That's the default setting of our hearts now, right? And even after we've become believers and been given new hearts, it's still a temptation to fall back into those old patterns of thinking. The default question of our hearts is whether or not God is for us. And what's interesting is, in the next point what we see, is that with the captain of the Lord's army, how he responds is he says the answer is no, which is interesting. So let's look at verse 14. Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he, that is the captain of the Lord's army, said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. So Joshua encounters this armed man, this soldier. Joshua bravely walks up to him, confronts him, and asks the man whose side that he's on. And what's interesting is some translations give this answer as uh, the captain of the Lord's army saying neither, but actually the literal uh, translation 
is that he says, no, no. In other words, he's saying it's the wrong question, right? You're asking the wrong question. The question isn't whether or not I am for you or not. The question is whether you're with me or not. That's actually the question. It's actually the question for us this morning, too. Are we with you or not, God? You know, the NFL draft just happened um, a week or so ago, and it's interesting because you have all these pundits and analysts and scouts and uh, for the professional teams, and they're looking at all these college guys, and they're wanting to know about their physical attributes and about their emotional attributes. And one of the things that's often considered something they're looking for is they're looking for what they call an alpha or an alpha male. And of course, the reference of an alpha male is to you know, a wolf pack or a guerrilla troop where there's you know, one male that's the leader that everybody follows. And these NFL teams, they want that guy. They want a guy that's going to hold everybody accountable. They want a guy that's going to set the example. They want a guy that everyone will look to and say, we want to follow that guy into battle, right? And here, what we see in this passage is that Joshua is kind of the alpha of the Israelites, right? I mean, he's leading this group of 2.5 million people. He's, he is the commander of the Israelites moving into the promised land, and yet at this moment, he faces someone greater than he is. He faces the commander of the army of the Lord, right? And so we come to God asking if he is for us, and then we pray and we live and we relate to God by expecting him to jump on board with and to bless our agenda, and he rightfully and mercifully says no. Like a loving parent to a boundary-testing two-year-old, he reminds us that true life, true flourishing is actually found in submitting to him, not in hoping that somehow he will submit to us. It's why Jesus taught us to pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It's not about my name, it's about his name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Like what the Lord's Prayer is doing is, is praying us out of our agenda and into submitting to God, our Father, who loves us and who cares for us, and ultimately who is the one that actually sets us free to flourish as human beings. So the answer is no, is that we need to be asking whether or not we are for him. But the answer is also yes. Look at, uh, we'll look at verse 10. Verse 10 says this, it says, on the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. What is God doing? What God is doing there is he's actually reminding his people that he rescued them. So am I for you? Absolutely. I rescued you out of Egypt. Passover was a reminder of several things. It was a reminder that God had fought for them. They didn't do anything, right? He single-handedly, God single-handedly brought Egypt, the greatest military power in the world, to its knees. The Passover reminds God's people that he freed them from slavery in order to bring them home. The Passover reminded them that God had protected them from the angel of death. The Passover reminded them that God loved them and that he was for them, right? That was a, a wonderful reminder on the eve of battle. And so the Passover that was celebrated in the Old Testament has become the Lord's Supper, or what some people call communion in the New Testament, but the meaning is still the same. It's that God is for us, that God loves us, that we are safe, and that we are free because of the eternal Passover lamb, Jesus. And so on the eve of battle, what God reminds the children of Israel is, I am absolutely for you. You are safe with me, remember the Passover, remember that I led you out of Egypt. The second way in which he says yes to that question, are you for me, 
is this thing that we looked about looked at a moment called circumcision. Verses two and three, read these with me and we'll look at verse nine too. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibeath Haraloth. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, today I've rolled away the reproach or shame of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day. And so in this action of circumcision, God is reminding his people not only that he has set them free, that he's called them out of slavery, but that he has set them apart for himself. And so circumcision was the Old Testament sign of entrance into the covenant community, the sign that was placed upon baby boys on the eighth day after their birth. It represented cleansing and being set apart to God. It prefigured Jesus' blood, making us clean. In the New Testament, baptism similarly symbolizes entrance into the covenant community. And whereas circumcision looked forward to Jesus, baptism looks back at Jesus' death on the cross. Either way, both represent being set apart to God. So when I was 23 years old, uh, living in St. Louis, Missouri, uh, Krista was living on Lookout Mountain, and uh, uh, I had a, basically this, come to this point in our relationship where we decided to some degree that uh, maybe it was time to get married. And so I had a friend who had a plane, and he was flying down to Chattanooga, and so I um, had bought a little engagement ring, and when I say little, I do mean little. Um, it's kind of cute, actually as opposed to a helicopter landing pad like my sister's engagement ring is. Anyway, and uh, so I took this little engagement ring and I stuffed it into my pocket and got on the plane with my buddy. We flew down to Lookout Mountain, um, got up to to Covenant College where Krista was at the time, knew that I was going to ask her to marry me. And I had this place picked out up on Lookout Mountain, this really cool, these cliffs that overlook the valley below. And so I was like, hey, let's go for a walk. I remember the jeans I had on, actually, and the shoes. I remember everything. And uh, so, you know, Krista and I are walking, and it's funny, in retrospect, she tells me she knew what I was doing, although I thought I was surprising her. And we came to this cl- the cliff where I was like, this is where I'm going to propose to her. And one of my buddies, Benji Clark, and somebody were, was there ahead of me. I was like, oh, no, I've got to change plans. And so we walked around the campus a little bit more, and I was like, well, there's this other place, the Overlook at Covenant. We'll do it there. And so I got down on one knee, and I proposed to Krista, and I put this embarrassingly small little <laughs> engagement ring on her finger. But what that engagement ring symbolized when she said yes was that it set her apart, uh, that it set her apart, that we were for one another. And what's interesting is several months later, we stood in a lookout mountain prez up on the mountain, and I placed another ring on Krista's finger, and this time I made vows to her. And I said, I, Brian, take you, Krista, to be my wedded wife. And I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be your loving and faithful husband in sickness and in health, in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, as long as we both shall live. You remember these vows, many of you in this room. This ring I give you as a symbol and pledge of constant faith and abiding love, right? What circumcision, even though it sounds kind of crazy to us in some respect, we don't get it, and what baptism symbolizes too, what they all symbolize is that God has set us apart And that it's a declaration on his part to be faithful to us, to fight for us, to love us in sickness and in health, right? Till death, till we arrive with him in heaven, but he's for us. And the story, this interesting story of the commander of the Lord's army and circumcision and 
the Passover and all these things, it's actually a story of good news. It's a story that God is holy and that we are to submit to him, right? The question is, are we on his team or not? It's to trust him with our lives, but it's also a story that God is loving, that he has set us apart for himself, that he has rescued us from our slavery. And what's interesting is our response, Joshua's response as an 80-year-old man, a soldier in his own right, is to do what? It's to worship, right? It's to worship. Look at uh, verses 14 and 15. It says, And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? What, what will you have me do? Right? Just tell me. And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Right? On the eve of battle, the preparation for battle was worship, to worship God. The response to God's honor and majesty and glory, the response to God setting the Israelites apart, the response to God saving them and rescuing them from slavery is worship, right? And it's our response as well. 1,500 years later, God would come to earth again to fight for his people against sin and death. Only this time, the angelic army would stand down, watching while Jesus allowed himself to be captured and put to death in our place. Angels and humans were shocked and filled with dismay as the Son of God hung lifeless on a cross. But the victory would come three days later as the sun began to rise over this very same promised land that Joshua stood in. The commander of the Lord's army this day stepped out of the tomb alive, having conquered sin and death and our rebellious hearts, And once and for all, he fought a battle for you and for me. And our response should be the same as Joshua's, to worship and to ask, what does my Lord say to his servant? Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that uh, through these stories, you communicate timeless truths to us. And so, Father, I pray even today as we read this story of Joshua, the old soldier, Uh, running into you uh, on the plains there of Jericho, Father, that that we would also respond as Joshua responded, that we would fall down and worship you. And Father, that we would also respond by saying, what do you say to us? We're your servants, Father. Let us submit. Let uh, Let us follow you. Please lead us. Direct us, Father. And so, Father, I pray this morning um, that we would uh, do just that. I pray that we would worship you for the salvation that you have offered to us through your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.